Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, simpletons. You're listening to The Minimalist's Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, TK Coleman. Good morning, afternoon, day, evening, whatever. Good everything. Alabama's here as well. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Got the rest of our team in the studio. I just got off the phone with Nicodemus last night. He was moving in to his new place, which is actually his old place. He's been airbnb it out in... Um, Missoula, Montana. So he hasn't been able to actually go into his condo that he owns because ah. people have been renting it. He's been staying with his in-laws. So we had that issue last week with the internet connection. And he's supposed to be with us next week, though. He feels really good about the internet <clears throat> connection. We're going to bring him back for episode 406, which coincidentally, area code of Montana. What? Wow, how about that? Hey. It, it all comes full circle. Nicodemus, we will see you next week. But in the meantime, shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Your support keeps our podcast and YouTube channel 100% advertisement free. Because say it with me, y'all. Advertisements, Advertisements suck. suck. They're singing along at home. Let's start with our callers. If you have a <laughs> question or a comment for our show, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice recording to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a Patreon subscriber so we can prioritize your message. By the way, we're also looking for more listener insights and tips. You can call that same number or send a email voice recording to podcast at the if you have an insight about this episode or any of our previous episodes, we'd love to feature your voice on the show. Our first question today is from Sophie. Hi, my name is Sophie from Charleston, South Carolina. I'm a Patreon subscriber, and I've been listening to you guys for a few years. So um, I wanted to talk about a, a book I just finished up. It's called Buy Nothing, Get Everything. The concept of this book talks about how instead of going out and buy, buying things and contributing to all these companies that you may not stand for and um, creating more problems, you know, and ecologically, right? Because we're coming, you know, buying things and creating more plastic and creating more things in this world that we may not need. Um, this book talks about exchanging and trading and offering to people and fixing what you own or having someone fix it for you and I really like the concept I've actually already have practices with a lot of my friends but now I'm starting to practice it with strangers there are local groups that's called buy nothing etc like um, the place you're locally located and I've subscribed to all of them and I've gotten you know a few things actually I was working on a side project from my home and someone has some leftover drywall and I grabbed that up and now I used it on my project that I'm working on and I've also gotten rid of some things as well that hopefully it served a great purpose for someone else but one thing I am worried about or it may not contribute to the idea of getting rid of things because in order to fix things and in order for you to get someone else's stuff now you're 
keeping stuff. And now it goes back to like how you guys say the just in case items. And I don't know, I'm, ha I'm having a hard time with this and I wanted to have you guys input in it. Thank you so much once again. Sophie, thank you for a thoughtful question here. I have not read the Buy Nothing, Get Everything plan. It is a book I'm familiar with, although I am really familiar with the Buy Nothing groups. We'll put a link to some of the Buy Nothing groups in the show notes. Also, we have minimalist.org, which we have free local meetup groups where folks of like mind or open minds can connect with local people in their city. I want to say this. I want to give you a warning that binary thinking often leads to detrimental outcomes, inharmonious outcomes, right? And when you just see the headline or the title of a book, like buy nothing, get everything, it can conjure some images. And if you stop right there and you say, well, wait a minute, they're telling me I shouldn't buy anything. That's not the spirit of a book like this. I'm going to read the uh, overview of the book real quick. And then TK, I thought we could talk about it a little bit because buy nothing, get everything when taken literally means one thing. But when we take it as a figurative stance or a new disposition on life can mean something completely different. When taken really literally, it's scary. It's like, man, I didn't even pay for this stuff. And now I still got to figure out what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Buy nothing. <laughs> which Even you take that literally, can I go out and buy something called nothing? Mm -hmm. Oh, wait a minute. And how much does nothing cost? And if you buy nothing and you get everything, maybe I didn't want everything. <laughs> but that is not the spirit of this yeah. book. In their island community, friends uh, Liesl Clark and Rebecca Rockefeller discovered that the beaches of Puget Sound were spoiled by a daily influx of plastic items and trash washing on shore. From pins and toothbrushes to toys and straws, they wondered, where did it all come from? Of course, it comes from us, our homes, our backyards, our cars, our workplaces. And so a rallying cry against excess stuff was born. Now, that to me sounds like minimalism, a rallying cry not against stuff, but against yeah excess stuff. So in 2013, they launched their first Facebook Buy Nothing project group in their small town off the coast of Seattle, and they never expected it to become a viral sensation. Today, there are tens of thousands of Buy Nothing groups all over the world. Again, we'll put a link to the Buy Nothing project in the show notes so folks can find a Buy Nothing group close to them. It's boasting over a million members and 5,000 highly active volunteers. Inspired by the ancient practice of gift economies, where neighbors share and pool resources, the Buy Nothing, Get Everything plan introduces an environmentally conscious seven-step guide that teaches us how to buy less, give more, and live mm. generously. Now, I've never been upset when I started to be more intentional and deliberate with my yeah. buying purchases. I've also never been upset when I've been generous. I've never regretted my own generosity, right? Yeah. And quite often though, I am apprehensive about being generous for some reason because of some story I tell myself, but I don't look in the rear view and say, wait a minute, I wish I wouldn't have been that generous unless someone manipulated me or, or something like that. But even then I can look back on it and say, I feel good about my generosity. And so I think the spirit of something like the Buy Nothing Project or this book, Buy Nothing, Get Everything, is much more about being 
conscious or deliberate with our decisions, it's not about that binary thinking. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think of the distinction between abundance and excess, where abundance is the opportunity to be generous, whereas excess is the the weight of the unbearable. And those are two very different things, right? And so you can have a lot of stuff and whether it's abundance or it's excess depends, how do you intend to use that? What is your relationship to that? When I think about this question, I think about my aunt, God bless her, rest her soul. She used to be in arts and crafts and there was hardly an occasion where we would go through a flea market or a drive past a garage sale where she wouldn't see something that she could use. And she she was, she was always had an eye for that. Oh yeah, I'm gonna grab a few of those. Oh, that's a really good deal. I'm gonna take it. But she knew her network and she had a concept of what her projects were like. And so she had a sense of how she's gonna use it. For some of those things, she may not use it for six weeks. For some of them, she'd use it right away. But for her, it was abundance because everything she brought into her home was an opportunity for her to be generous, either through making something that others would appreciate or by giving it to other people in her network who also liked to create. But if you're just saying, I'm going to pick this up, I'm going to get this because there's a philosophy that says do this and do that, then that does become another form of clutter. Yeah. And it becomes an ism that you have to follow. And when I follow minimalism, I often say that minimalism is the only idea without an ideology Mm. (laughs) because we don't prescribe things. And I think, in fact, that's where the buy nothing groups can go wrong when they, and just how minimalism can go wrong when they become so prescriptive that it gets in the way of what actually adds value. I read the end of this book synopsis here, filled with helpful lists and practical suggestions, including 50 items you never need to buy. And it lists Ziploc bags and paper towels. Well, I'll tell you that I'm already out then because I purchase both of those things. And I don't think you're evil if you use those things either. Now, I do so deliberately. In fact, I've removed those things from my life for a period of time and recognized that I was depriving myself. I was missing out on those things that I did get value from. And are there alternatives? Sure there are. And I've even tried alternatives, right? But as soon as you make a list of here are the 50 things you're not allowed to buy as a good minimalist or as a buy nothinger or whatever you are calling yourself, right? Now you're sort of missing the point of the intentionality. Yeah, and I think intentionality can be applied to advice or ideas like this in a way that makes it healthy. So an example, I've mentioned this to, to you before, I read an article once on how I read one book a week for a year. I read that article and that did not make me the kind of person who read one book per week, but it did help me learn some useful tips for learning how to read more. So when you understand the why behind a person's strategy, it may not follow that their exact goal matches up with yours, but you may be able to find something useful there. So I even like the idea that they're questioning people's assumptions about what you need to buy. Like, let's do it because you got to do it with something specific, right? And so maybe it's Ziplocs, whatever. And I might read that and say, nope, I still need to buy those things. But if I understand their why, I might be able to apply that to something else and be able to eliminate excess from my life in other forms. And I think that's where you connect with the authors here. It's much more about questioning the assumptions than it is about giving a prescription. I, I could say, here's a list of 50 things you might want to question in your life. Oh, now it gets interesting. And it also becomes hyper individual because if I give you that list of 50 items, you might say, you know what? I actually need more of these. 
I need fewer of these. I need none of these. I don't want to buy these anymore. I want to make them. I don't want to buy these. I want to trade for them. And that's the spirit of the buy nothing groups. It's, hey, you know what? Mallory has that thing that I use once a year. It's a blender and I never use blenders, but for this one occasion, I need a blender. Hey, Mal, instead of me going out buying a blender. How about I just borrow yours for a day? And I think that's the community aspect of the buy nothing groups that I think really helps. However, the other side of that can be what? They hear the, you're going to own nothing and you are going to be happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think when you, when you are in the business of creating, and maybe business isn't the right word here, but when you're involved in the process of creating You learn not to be overly literal about things. You learn to be charitable and forgiving with how loose the language can be. I mean, you take this idea of buy nothing and get everything. There's probably not another phrase you can use that will get me interested in what you have to say in quite the same way. I mean, if you get too nuanced, you're going to put everyone to sleep. If you say, hey, here is a process whereby if you buy fewer things, you might get more of the things that you want and that okay, now you've just said something that's not interesting. But when you tell me buy nothing, get everything, it's like, whoa, what does that mean? You've got me. I'm curious. And all you got to do is deliver something that actually makes me question my assumptions and leads to a healthy life. So I like the title. It, It does compel me. It does get my attention. And it sounds like what they're saying is something along the lines of, hey, look, if you stop this sort of like autopilot habit of trying to buy your way out of problems, buying your way into happiness... and and you focus more on community and connection and creativity, then you'll find yourself getting more of the things that you want because the essence of what we want is often not found in the things that we buy in the first place. Whenever I go out on book tour, I've met so many people who tell me, oh, you know what I do with my chainsaw or what I do with my push broom that I use once a year or what I do with my waffle maker. I keep it in my community storage locker. I'm like, what is that? And they're like, it's called Craigslist or eBay (laughs) or Facebook Marketplace. Yeah. And the truth is, if I need a chainsaw once a year, I can go out and buy one and then I own one and then I have to take care of it or whatever else. But maybe I only need it once a year. No one else is getting value from it, but I can go to Craigslist. I could buy one when I need it. And when I'm done with it, I can get roughly the same amount of money or sometimes even more money back for that thing. That is the spirit of this. We're talking about not a forced communal sharing, but a desire to be generous, a desire to own fewer things because many of those things get in the way, a desire to buy less and be more intentional with our other resources. And for that, I applaud them. I'll put a link to the book in the show notes as well. If you do want to check out the book, you're welcome to do that. And speaking of being intentional, I think sometimes, and and also questioning the assumptions. Yeah. I think sometimes it makes sense to set up some boundaries. We have 16 rules for living with less. It's yeah. called the Minimalist Rulebook. You can download it for free over at theminimalists.com slash rulebook. And in there, you'll find 16 boundaries. They're not really rules because they're adjustable. It's what works for you. And maybe 13 of them work for you and three of them don't. Or maybe the seasonality rule is a little bit too strict for you. Or maybe it's not strict enough. And you're like, nope, it's not 90 days for me. It's 30 days for me. That's what makes the most sense. Whatever it is, adjust your boundaries yeah. to fit your lifestyle. You don't have to cram your lifestyle style into someone else's boundaries. That's exactly right. And, and for this question, I think about it in terms of like a library book. 
when you go to the library and you check out a book, you get a certain amount of time to keep it, right? So maybe it's three weeks and you read it in that time. And if you're making progress, you can check it out again or you don't read it in that time. If you don't read it and you're busier than you thought, whatever, you put it back into the pool so someone else who might read it can get it and you can come back to it later. And so if you're afraid of just in case, it doesn't sound like you have a just in case issue, Sophie. It sounds like you're dealing with more of a know my lifestyle kind of issue. You you take things into your home because you're good at knowing how you can use them or redistribute them. But if you're concerned about some just in case, you can just take a library technique and say, you know what, for anything I bring into my home, I get a three week turnaround. You can adjust that number, fine tune it to how it fits your lifestyle. And if it does, if you don't use it or give it away during that time, you put it back into the community storage locker, so to speak. And what you're doing there is you're setting up a boundary. So you're not holding on to tens of thousands of just in case items. I love the analogy that you're using here with respect to the library. Libraries are outstanding. But just because I say libraries are outstanding, a binary thought pattern would be, well, that means bookstores suck. You shouldn't buy (laughs) books. You should only rent the books from the library, have them lend the books to you for free from the library. Where I live in Ojai, California, there is a great library there. And right next door, there's a bookstore. And they can coexist. Sometimes I might want to buy a book. Sometimes I want, might want to borrow a book. And it's up to me to determine what is most appropriate. And that's what the buy nothing, get everything movement is about. It's not actually buy nothing. It's, oh, would it be more appropriate for me to just check this book out of the library right now? Or would it be more appropriate for me to buy this book right now? And there isn't a right answer universally. There's just an answer that would be right for me. Mm. Our next question is from Holly. Hi, I'm Holly from Jacksonville Beach, Florida, and I live pretty clutter-free and I'm not a materialistic person at all. And I've always believed, like you say, that the memory is not in the object. And if everything's a treasure, nothing is a treasure. But my dilemma is after my husband passed away at just 49 years old, his belongings are the only tangible things I have left to smell and see and feel. So the items have become very important. And I've kept everything and have a bit of a shrine going on in his closet. And even worse, the trauma of his unexpected death has also caused me to be clingy with all my kids' items and other members of my family too, because I think, what if something happens to them and I got rid of all their things and will have nothing to physically see and touch? I want to live in the now, but I can't help but worry about having regrets in the future. So I would love your advice. Holly, it's true that clutter is contagious and you're seeing that in your own life right now. If everything is important, then nothing's important. Yeah. Holly, I just got to begin by saying our condolences on the loss of your husband and in, in your dealing with that trauma. And, you know, you keeping things around as a way of holding on to him, there may come a day where you say, it's time for me to move on. It's time for me to let go of this T-shirt or this sweater or whatever it is that reminds me of his scent, his touch. It's time to let this go. And when that day comes, you will know not because someone has told you so. You will know because it feels right to let it go. It feels more burdensome than it does healing. For now, it sounds like this is an important part of your healing process. 
and you are allowed the time and space that you need to heal and you are allowed the freedom that you need to heal in your own way. It's not about anybody else's opinion about whether or not you should hold on to something or let it go. So I just want to lead with that. When we turn towards the children who are with you now, there's this separate issue though that says, well, what if my children end up being in this same category? What if there's a trauma that happens with them? And if I don't have certain items around, I will regret not having that around. That's a real possibility. And I, and I want to validate that. There's also another possibility. And that possibility is I could take the time that I have with them right now and allow it to be so overwhelmed and compromised by the fear of trauma that I fail to connect with them as deeply as I can in the present moment. What matters more, connecting with them as deeply as possible right now or preparing for a possible traumatic event that could take that connection away in the future? When I think about losing my two best childhood friends, one never made it through his 20s, the other never made it past his 40s. If, if there is any regret, it's not about failing to have something by which I can remember them. It's about not working a little bit harder when they were around to make that coffee meeting happen, to make that time where we're going to go to the movies happen. And I think you talk to people who lose people unexpectedly. The first place the mind tends to go is, oh, I should have called them. I've, I've been thinking about calling them. I should have called them. I've been thinking about hanging out with them. We, we assumed we had more time than we actually would have. And sometimes even the need to hang on to things afterwards is a way of, of healing ourselves through that kind of process. And I would say, you got your children with you. There is nothing more important. There is no artifact. There is no thing. There is no material possession that could ever be more important than letting them know right now you love them and being fully present with them and enjoying the heck out of every second you have with them. And if stuff or a preoccupation with making sure you don't have any regrets about stuff is getting in the way of that, let that go for the sake of being able to hold on to them, hold them while they are there because that's the best kind of holding to do. Because clinging to your children, to your spouse, to a person from the past, to someone who's passed on, to friends, to a career, whatever kind of clinging it might be, actually harms the experience you have with that person or with that career or with that hobby. If I'm constantly clinging to the memories of the past, I'm not enjoying the present moment right now. There's a great reason that a lot of us get out into nature and we really enjoy nature. We feel called to nature. Well, why is that? because it puts us in the present moment without the need for acquisition of more things. I mean, sure, you can wear a nice pair of shoes, but that doesn't make you more in nature, right? You can have the right hiking vest, but it doesn't make you more present. You can have some things that augment your experience of life, but ultimately, mm. those things often get in the way of the present moment. They get in the way of right now. And yeah. so, when we're talking to Holly here, TK, I thought you said something that made a whole lot of sense to me. You talked about how you will let go when it feels right. You will let go when it feels right to you. However, that doesn't mean that it's going to feel pleasant. It doesn't mean that it's going to feel 
easy to let go. Now, why is that? Well, because we cling for so long and we don't even realize how tight we're holding on to something, thinking that we're holding on to the person, even though it's just an artifact that is a representation in our mind of that person. And we've been clinging for so long. Our clinch is so tight that it's actually freeing Mm. to let go, but it seems difficult to let go. It seems like I'm never going to be able to do this. Why? Because it's unpleasant. Mm. Big changes are always unpleasant, but that's not the same thing as it feels wrong to let go. It's not wrong to let go. When it feels right to let go, it's still going to be difficult to let go. But that's why we do it. If it was always easy to let go, we wouldn't have a whole show predicated on simple living and intentionality. If letting go was easy, we'd all do it mindlessly. Mm. But what do we do instead mindlessly? We consume, we hold on, we cling, we consume more, and the cycle continues. Letting go is not easy, but it is simple. Yeah, it feels right isn't always the same as it feels recreational. I think about that moment when my wife and I were getting ready to leave our place in Charleston, and this was it. Everything was gone. The keys were turned in. The last check over all the rooms was done. It was over. And we're standing there like the season finale, the series finale of an episode of a TV show. And we're just looking, thinking about all the moments. But we've got to go. We've got family waiting on us. We've got friends waiting on us. We got to go. And as we're standing there looking, we don't want to leave. We want to stay in that moment forever. And I said, it's time. Yeah. We got to go. And that, that felt tough, man. But it also felt right because I knew more than I know anything else. It's time to say goodbye. Right. Yeah. It's time to say goodbye to this chapter. This chapter. Yeah. And I think that's where Holly is right now is you've reached the end of a chapter. You're in this great in-between space right now. The previous question, we talked about the buy nothing groups. The interesting thing here is maybe you're holding on to a lot of things that you're no longer getting value from. But the true test of generosity is being willing to let go of something that you no longer enjoy, something you no longer are able to realize as a a piece of value in your life. And yet someone else gets immense value from that. And that is the spirit of the buy nothing groups is, oh, you know what? You don't need that anymore, but I could really get something out of this for my next chapter. It served you in your last chapter. It's going to serve someone else in their next chapter. The last question I would ask, TK, Mm. is what did your husband want out of all all of this? Not literally, what are the things he wanted you to hold on to? But what did he want from you? Did he want you to be happy? Did he want you to feel the sense of scarcity and clinging after his passing? I know that when I die, I don't want my wife to feel obligated with any of my material burdens. When I pass away, when I'm gone, it doesn't matter to me what happens to my things. What matters to me now is how she's going to feel in relationship to those things. And if they're causing stress, if they're causing anxiety or overwhelm in her life, man, I really hope she's willing to let go. Yeah. The last thing I'll say on this is there's a difference between loving our children out of a present moment awareness and clinging to our children out of a fear of loss. And I think there's nothing wrong 
with wanting to hang on to something whereby you can remember another person. But try as much as possible to get yourself into a space where you're doing that from a place of love, joy, and peace, rather than from a place of fear, because you don't want to be constantly introducing into your interaction with your children a vibration of, I'm afraid of losing you. I'm afraid of losing you. I'm afraid of losing you. That's going to compromise the sense of joy and play that you all can connect to together. You bring up a great point. There's nothing wrong with holding on. I enjoy rock climbing. And as an analogy, when you go rock climbing, you have to hold on. Otherwise, you'll (laughs) fall and you'll hurt yourself. However, you also have to let go repeatedly. To rock climb effectively and to live life effectively, you have to hold on and then let go. So you can hold on again to something else. You can go higher, you can go sideways, or you can go down, you can go over, you can get closer to a friend or farther away from someone. You have to hold on to get where you're going, but you also have to let go in order to get there. Holly, thank you so much for your question. Our next question is from Nikki. Hi, minimalists. My name is Nikki, and I'm a Patreon supporter from Warwickshire in England. So we have a gorgeous three-year-old son. It's been hard, of course, and honestly, most of the time it still is. (laughs) And we're definitely at maximum capacity. But I think just finally, maybe from all various perspectives, we're starting to feel like we have enough, um, enough time, enough money, enough energy, (laughs) and enough patience, just about. Yeah, so we're really, really happy in general. Uh, With one child, I can kind of see this future with enough time and space for me to manage my mental health, um, enough space and attention for us to nurture our son really how we would like, um, to travel as a family, uh, for both my partner and I to grow our careers how we would like, um, enough time to stay on top of the housework and organisation, which is a huge part of particularly my mental well-being I don't like too much chaos um and generally enough money just to afford more of what we value I can totally see a really happy life for the three of us just carrying on exactly how we are however um I just can't seem to shake this idea that only one child won't be enough forever um I worry that not creating this you know, quote-unquote sibling experience will be enough for our son in the future or that we're going to regret somehow our decision to remain a three-person family. So how do you override cultural pressure and unsolicited comments to have more children when right now you feel like you have enough? Um, How do you figure out if what is enough now will be enough in the future? Thank you. Nikki, I love that you say we're really happy right now. Yeah. And then you're also wondering, though, about your future happiness. And the thing I'll say about that is happiness is always right here, right now. It's never over there or right then, right there, right then. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to say happiness is over there. Because happiness is something that happens inside us. And so you're happy now, 
And what you're asking is, how do I continue to have this happiness? Usually what people ask, TK, is I'm miserable right now, so happiness must be somewhere over there. That's right. And I hear also, I'm happy, but there's this cultural pressure that says I should have more than one child, or I should have a life that is different from the one that makes me happy. I have enough, but culture's telling me I don't have enough. Now, we hear Mm. that with respect to our things. Mm -hmm. Is there a buy nothing group for kids? (laughs) (laughs) Because if so, I'd love to loan you a (laughs) 10-year-old. Nikki, maybe just for a year or two. And you tell me what you think. No, but I I think, TK, one of the, the fascinating things I'm thinking about here is she has identified what enough is. And we talk about that with respect to our material possessions. But now she's like, well, culture is saying I should have more material possessions. And culture, the culture that she's a part of, apparently, is saying she should have more kids as well. And the people around you telling you what you should do is rarely ever a good reason to do what is going to make you happy. That's right. And it's not about having more or less. It's about the nature of culture. So imagine a couple that wants to have children, but they're struggling to have them or they can't have them. And culture looks at those that couple and says, oh, you guys should have kids. But they don't know the story, right? Because it's not the nature of culture to consult your story. Or imagine the couple that's got six or seven kids. Culture looks at them and says, oh, you have all those kids. You shouldn't bring all those kids into the world. Are you even doing a good job taking care of them? Not even caring about how happy that family might be together. Why? Because culture never consults your story. It never consults your personal philosophy of happiness. What it does is it holds up some vanilla, boring concept of like, here's what normative is. And it demands that everyone live up to that. Mm. And if you're not living up to that, you get to be condemned by that cultural standard. But it's like, you know what makes you happy. You know what makes you healthy. Why sacrifice that? in the name of living up to a standard that no one even knows who invented and no one's going to take ownership of if you turn out to be unhappy as a result of living by that standard. You know, you trade in what makes you happy for the sake of some cultural norm and you end up being miserable and you turn around and you say, who's responsible for this? Everyone's going to look at you and say, not me, not me. Yeah. Here's some extra insights for you, Nikki, to think about. One, with me, I have only one kid. She's 10 now. I think my life would have been appreciably easier if we had two in the sense that she would have had a play partner, especially when they're relatively close together. Three years is probably a pretty big gap at this point because by the time you have another kid, we're talking a four-year gap. I think about my wife who has three other siblings. There's four of them in her family, right? And her parents got a reprieve constantly because the kids that were able to play together, they occupied each other and the parents acted quite often as referees or as boundary setters (laughs) more than play partners. Having one kid though, your life tends to become structured around them. And that's not say one is better than the other. It's just understanding the dynamics do change when you have two or more kids relatively close together. Now, I will say this, if Bex and I decided to have another kid now, and they were 10 or 11 years apart, 
you wouldn't you also wouldn't have that dynamic. It'd be raising a single child all over again with a soon to be teenager in the house. In fact, we just decided on this recently. Bex uh, had her tubes tied a few weeks ago. Uh, first surgery she's ever had in her life. And we had a lot of talks around this. I never asked her to or encouraged her to, but I, I listened to her throughout the whole process. It was her body and what she decided. She didn't want to have another kid and she didn't want to accidentally get pregnant. She recently removed um, the IUD that she had because she was afraid of, of cop, copper toxicity. Hmm. And in that process, there was a lot of decision-making that had to happen. And we were asking similar questions to what Nikki was asking. You know, Bex is hyper healthy, a paragon of health, but she's also 41 years old. So she could have another kid at 41 for sure. Bex could probably have kids into her 50s. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. But and in fact, that was part of our algebra of this whole equation here. Like, wait a minute. Do we want to have another kid? Culture tells us it's a good thing. But is that what, what's going to make us happy? And I think the truth is, Nikki, there are two different outcomes here. There's an outcome, you stay on the path you're on, you have one kid, and you're happy. There's another path that you go on where you have two kids or three kids, and you're happy. Which happy path do you want to take? Also, there are two other possible worlds where you just have that one kid and you end up unhappy, or you have more kids, like culture's telling you to have, and you're still unhappy. Yes. All of those things are possible. And I put that one out there, not for the sake of being ne uh, negative, but for clarifying the distinction between being in love with a future you want to create and being fearful of a possible future you might regret. When it comes to that latter one, that's not a good place from which to make decisions because it's possible, it's hypothetically possible that you could regret any of the futures that unfold. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know who you're going to be when you get there. And so you can't make decisions based on the possibility of, well, I'm really happy right now. I love my life right now, right now. But in 10 years, I might be someone that's different than the person I am today. And I might regret everything that I'm doing today. That's true under every scenario or that's possible under every scenario. And you can't make choices based on that sense of fear. Like you got to get grounded in what do you love? And, and if you want to have more children, do it from that place of the only person you can be, is, which is who you are right now. You know who you are right now. You know what your priorities are right now, but you're not going to be able to predict who you're going to be in 10 years. I also think that's an interesting philosophical experiment because we know there are certain things that I don't want to do and I'm probably going to regret it. If you handed me a knife right now and said, Josh, and you want you to cut off your foot, you have a choice to either cut off your foot or not cut off your foot. Right. I'm probably going to regret that. However, I know someone who lost his foot and he said it's one of the most profound things that ever happened to him. And he learned so much, it changed his life. Now, it doesn't mean I need to cut off my foot to change my life, right. but quite often, many of the things that we thought were going to be devastating and we were going to regret for the rest of our lives, they end up shaping us in these dynamic, interesting ways that make us uncomfortable, but that discomfort zone is the place from which we grow the most. Yeah. And we got to be careful there too, because- the reason you're able to say, I know I would regret something is because you know right now, based on the person you are today, what your values are, and you know that doing that conflicts with your values. That's different from the hypothetical trap of, I don't know if I'll regret that, but I'm just afraid of getting to a possible future where I might not like it anymore. And you can't live from that. Yeah, absolutely. 
Nikki, thank you so much for your question. Good luck in your searching. I do think you will be happy either way because you have a happy disposition. And I think something tragic could happen to you, Nikki, and you would still be happy. The question now is what is the most appropriate path forward? Not because my society or culture has dictated it, but because this is the decision I want to make for me, for my family. Our next question is from Zach. Hey folks, longtime listener here, first time writer. I could use your help. For the last 15 years, my side hustle has been working as a music teacher and a performing musician. As you can imagine, I've collected a lot of gear over the years. That said, I've been careful not to collect redundant gear. For example, I currently own five guitars. This includes a six string acoustic, a 12 string, a Les Paul, a Strat, a bass guitar. Might sound like a lot to have five guitars, but each one has its own purpose. Now, onto my question. I have a one and a half year old and a three month old at home and life is absolute chaos, but it's good chaos. As a result of all of this chaos, I have a room full of music gear that I've barely touched in about two years. I don't teach music lessons anymore because a drum set and a sleeping baby aren't really a good combo. I haven't played out in about a year because I'd rather spend time with my family. I love playing music. I'm sure I'll get back into it when, when they get a little older. And for that matter, maybe they'll have a passion for music as well. So what do I do? I'm tempted to sell everything, but I'm afraid that once the dust settles, I'll regret getting rid of gear that I've invested years of my life into. Hmm. The word that I heard that came to mind right away is chaos. <laughs> There's a lot of chaos there yeah. right now. And he's seen the chaos because having two young kids creates a tremendous amount of chaos. But then also, all of these things that I owned that I used to use, I don't use anymore. I'm telling myself I might use them or might not use them in the future. But right now, that is adding to the chaos as well. And what I'll say is chaos is the starting line yeah. for simplicity. Yeah. So the the phrase that jumped out for me was fear of regret. And, and this seems to be somewhat of a theme, right? And I love to hear your thoughts on this, but it seems to me that Part of pursuing any dream or part of practicing any value involves dealing with that fear of regret. You move to a new city, but what if you don't like it? What if it's not everything that you thought it would be? You say yes to an exciting new job offer, but what if you get there and two months later, you find out that you hate all the people you work with. You fall in love with someone who's amazing, who gets you, you do all the right things, you check all the boxes, and it's time to take that next step. But what if the day after, the year after of getting married, you change and you don't want to be with them anymore? That possibility haunts us for everything that we can do. And so how do we deal with that fear of regret? We ask ourselves not, is it possible that my regret might come true? But rather, what is the love worth sacrificing for? What is that thing worth facing this possibility for? And that's what, that's what gives us that strength. And so I don't think this is about the instruments at all. I think it's about the children mm. and the connection that you have with those children. And so I would be asking myself, not how much can I get for these instruments? You know, um, you know, should I sell them? But rather, what kind of space for connection would they create? Mm -hmm. Because it's not clutter if it's not getting in the way. If it's enhancing your life and making you feel good to have it around and it's not bothering people, it's not holding you back from anything, it's not clutter. But if it's getting in the way, then what is that life it's getting in the way of? 
Mm-hmm. And what's the positive description for that? That'd be the question I'd ask. You reminded me of a question that I often ask is, what's the worst thing that could happen? Mm. And then you follow up that immediately with, what's the best thing that could happen? Mm. If I let go of this couch, or if I let go of all of my pairs of pants, if I let go of my dresser that I'm no longer using, if I let go of a lounge chair that's in the backyard that I don't use, if I let go of a coffee table that I just don't like, if I let go of these old plates and cups and bowls and utensils, what's the worst thing that could happen? I have to replace them at some point. What's the best thing that could happen? Oh, maybe I'm freeing up space for connection, freeing up space for love and caring. Maybe I'm freeing up the psychological space to get rid of that mental clutter, that space in my heart to get rid of that emotional clutter. When I'm letting go of those things that aren't serving me anymore, I'm making space for the best things that could happen. And usually when I'm letting go of a thing, the worst thing that could happen is not nearly as big as I make it in my mind. When I think about, oh man, what's the worst thing that could happen? You got rid of all of your equipment, all of your gear, all of your instruments. Well, maybe nothing happens. The worst thing that could happen is you have to replace a few things. And we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater either because there are maybe a few instruments that it makes sense to hold on to. What are the instruments that will facilitate connection with your kids? You hold on to that guitar and you play the guitar with them every night. Mm. Oh, how beautiful is that? What if you held on to one thing and got so much more value from that one thing than a hundred other things that were just sort of getting in the way. That's right. And sometimes that regret, sometimes, is a choice. I gave over 200 book, gave away over 200 books and that question haunted me. Am I going to regret this? Am I going to want some of these books back? I found some really good deals in used bookshops. Some of these books are rare. You know, I regret having to go through those steps again to retrieve some of them. And I had to make a decision right then and there. The answer is no. Because the answer isn't come coming from me predicting the future accurately. The answer is coming from me making a choice right now. What I am giving these books up for is valuable enough for me that I'm not going to insult it by treating it like it's something that isn't worth it. Freedom, future, I love you so much that I choose to embrace you and I say goodbye to this and decide that I'm never going to apologize for this decision. I I choose not to regret it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Zach, I want to speak to this uh, this moment where you said, but what if my kids want to play? Mm. Speaking as a child of a, of a gigging musician, he now does IT. But when I was very young, my dad made sure we always had access to instruments. And when my older sister expressed interest in it, he bought her a bass guitar. She loved it for two weeks and then said, ah, it's not my thing. And he was stuck going, well, I've already invested in this in, in this instrument. I, I don't need it. And he looked at me and said, do you want to try? And I ended up in loving it for eight years. But then I clung to that because it felt like it would be a disservice for me to get rid of that because it felt like an extension of my dad. That was something that took me a long time to let go of is that identity. So you can't really know whether or not your kids are going to be into this. There's a lot to factor in with this from my experience in music retail, I learned that there is a cost to keeping those instruments. Mm. You have to tune them. You have to keep them set up well. They don't just sit and collect dust and then work perfectly fine once you pick them off of the shelf or off of the music stand. No. You 
still have a cost to pay if you choose to hold on to those. As far as with your lessons go, should you find that that's something you still kind of want to do? Talk to the music stores in your area. A lot of times they have whole lesson rooms set up to where you can bring your stuff in. Sometimes they're big enough to where you can store your things there, like the drum set. A lot of people don't like to lug that. But you can connect with places like your mom and pop guitar shops or your, you know, um, I can't even think of the name of it is because I, I always couldn't, couldn't go there. Um, the Guitar Center? Yeah, Guitar Center. It's yeah. like, ooh, ugh, you know, <laughs> you work anywhere else. It's like, it's like, I don't know. Um, it's like Walmart, right? It's like Walmart. You're like, <laughs> you know, nothing wrong with them though. Like I took lessons there and I loved that as a kid. That is a great way for you to be able to do that outside of the home without disturbing the baby and things like that. Should you find that that's still something you feel compelled to do, but don't feel like you are robbing them of an experience if you don't have those instruments ready at hand. Because you can always go back to that. You can always bring them into a music store, let them cultivate that curiosity organically, mm-hmm. and then follow where it goes. And I think what you're touching on here is there's a difference between the experience of consuming music, which is what I was talking about earlier. Like you could play your guitar for the kids and it, they'll be enthralled by it, but it doesn't mean that they will necessarily want to pick up the guitar and play it as well. Now, they're probably more likely if they're exposed to that and immersed in a household that is music friendly. But you don't have to have all the gear of yesteryear in order to facilitate those experiences. I'm wondering if post-production Peter has any insights on this when he's listening to this after the fact. If so, feel free to, to drop something in. But let's move on to some social media questions. We got some questions from Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. What are we, uh, it's not even Twitter now. It's X. Uh, Has the name already changed? They changed it, yeah. Boo. That happened fast. I know, right? <laughs> we'll talk about that more during the lightning round. But right now, we got a question from Facebook. This one's from Jennifer. When did humans stop going with their gut? It's a powerful tool that we don't seem to listen to anymore. When we talk about going with the gut, we're talking about intuition. And I agree. Intuition is a powerful tool. It is a great compass. But sometimes our compasses break. Yeah, you know, I think part of the reason why is because there's sort of a lack of nuance around what it even means to follow one's gut. And there are so many caricatures around it that when people hear that, it often sounds to them like it's some fluffy sense of, oh yeah, just do whatever feels good to you, even if it harms a hundred people. You know, yeah, just go ahead and irresponsibly poison the water that's going to turn everyone in your community into vampires as long as it feels good to you. And I think, you know, following your gut has come under a lot of attack because there are some very good reasons for questioning this notion that we should do something just because in the moment it feels, you know, good in some vague and tangible sense. And so you're making a distinction between being selfish and operating in your own self-interest. That's right. Being selfish is operating at the detriment of others. I don't care if you get hurt. In fact, if you get hurt, not my problem. Yeah. Operating your own self-interest means, hey, look, I'm not going to do anything that harms other people directly, but I'm also not willing to harm myself just to appease the people around me. That's Mm. right. That's right. If I practice something called self-denial, it will be because I have some sort of goal or value that self-denial is a tool or strategy for, but I will not practice self-denial for no other reason other than to make you happy with me. That's a fast path to misery, right? 
So yeah, you know, I, I, I think maybe, maybe the antidote to some of the misunderstandings around following your gut is listen to your entire self because every decision involves the contribution of different facets of who we are as multidimensional beings. On one hand, you want to pay attention to your body. Like, do you feel drained when you think about that? Sometimes you can do that with, with eating. This is a big part of mindfulness. Sometimes you just think about what you're going to eat and you can feel in your body whether or not that's a good decision for you. Hmm. Sometimes you can think about an activity, just hold it in your mind or visualize it and your body will tell you if it wants anything to do with that or not. So listen to your body, not listen only to your body, but factor in how your body is feeling about something. At the same time, listen to your mind. Not everything is going to make sense. Not everything is provable in terms of a logical argument, but yeah, you want something to make sense to you. If you're part of a group and you're making some choices and someone says, I think this is a reasonable path, does that make sense to you? Don't lie and say, uh, yeah, it does when it really doesn't. If it seems contradictory to you, get your questions answered, raise your concerns, make sure you walk away with the sense of feeling good about what you're doing because it makes some sense to you. And in the same way, we have to listen to that visceral, intangible sense of knowing where maybe people give you a bunch of arguments for why it's going to make you happy. It's working for all the people that you know. But when you get ready to move in that direction, you get a check. Maybe your conscience says, this doesn't feel right. Or maybe your gut says, mm, there's something about this that doesn't agree with me. Well, you don't owe it to anyone to go down that path. Maybe you need more time to rethink it. So I, I think the lack of nuance is maybe why fewer people are doing that, if that's really the case, that fewer people are doing it. Um, but uh, maybe that is the antidote, thinking more holistically and not just basing our decisions on one part of ourselves. Right. Following your intuition is one thing, but blindly following your intuition, that's, right. that's where we get into trouble. Because yes, we can have a compass and it can be really useful if you're lost in the woods. But if the compass is broken, it ceases to be useful. Or if someone comes along and breaks your compass. They put a magnet elsewhere on the compass and you don't realize it. And I think one of the problems with follow your gut or follow your intuition or follow your heart, all of these are yeah. synonymous with each other, right? I think the problem with following your heart or following your gut presupposes that you haven't been influenced by these cultural influences. There's a magnet that's on your compass. And you've been taught to follow your gut toward impulse. Oh, you know, it'd make me feel good if I bought the thing right now. I can't afford it, so I'll put it on a credit card. I'll go into debt. I'll punish my future self because, oh, my heart wants it. And the heart wants what the heart wants. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but you know what else the heart doesn't want? The heart does not want to punish your future self. It doesn't want to make you miserable for a moment of pleasure right now, for that dopamine burst right now. Your heart wants what the heart wants. It is true. But what you want right now might be appreciably different from what you want a year from now or 10 years from now. And that has to be a part of the algebra of all of this as well. It's not just about what do I want in the impulse of the moment. It's about following my gut to get the outcomes I want today and tomorrow. That's right. There, there, there's truly an unhealthy version of everything. So whether it's following your heart, listening to your gut, paying attention to your body, using your reason, 
we can all find examples of people who claim to do these things and brought harm upon themselves. But just because there's an unhealthy version of everything doesn't mean there isn't a healthy version of those same things. There is a real sense in which following your heart can be a good thing. Thinking things through can be a good thing. Listening to your body can be a good thing. And it's just about balance. And I think what the question is really getting at is why do so many people fail to live the lives that they want to live? And I think it's because of fear. The fear not of failure, but the fear of being alone. Because when you choose to go your own way and you don't do the things that everyone thinks you ought to do and you fail, people tend to look at you like, I told you so. And they tend not to support you. But if you do things that everyone wants you to do and you fail, they tend to say, oh, well, hang in there. It's okay. You made the right choices. And so I think that fear of being alone is what causes a lot of people to sell their souls and give away their dreams and refuse to follow their hearts in the positive way. And the way you get back to that is you realize that in that fear of being alone, if you make choices only to please other people, you end up still being alone in a deeper spiritual sense that will haunt you for the rest of your life, even if you always have quote unquote friends around. And if you're following your heart, make sure it's your heart that you're following. That's right. If you're following your intuition, make sure it's your intuition that you're following. If you're following your gut, are you actually following your gut feeling? Or is it the societally prescribed feeling? (laughs) Is it what's in the zeitgeist right now? I have a friend from back in Dayton, Ohio, and he has recently fallen victim to the red pill community. Mm. And I see him saying things and posting things blindly that it seems as though he's gone out on his own way. He's shunned society just to pick up another set of ideology and baggage and parroting the same things that a particular movement is saying. And I'm not saying that there's anything evil about that movement, but if you simply pick up all the ideologies of a particular movement, of a religion, of a political party, if you're just picking it up and accepting it all as fact, well, then you aren't thinking clearly because you're not thinking for yourself. That's right. By the way, a red pill has become one of those terms that it's so all-encompassing now that it's become almost meaningless. I mean, it started with the matrix. The red pill was, here's a counterintuitive, non-obvious way of looking at reality. And then it got associated with like pickup artistry or men going their own way. But then, you know, like a carnivore, conspiracy theories. And now everyone who has maybe what they think to be an unconventional take prefaces it with, here's the red pill. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I don't even know what red pill means anymore, but you're absolutely right. You know, if you exchange one form of conformity for another form of conformity, it's still just the same old thing, right? It's not, you're not listening to your heart or doing what's best for you just because you're listening to a different group of people and letting them be the ones who tell you what to do. Maybe we just call it red pill clutter. (laughs) (laughs) That's the name of the episode. I I do want to hear from you, just like, even if it's just a quick take. Yeah. For someone who has trouble um, kind of prioritizing what matters most to them, what what would you say is a practice they can employ to help them get better at trusting their own path? Yeah. So when you talk about what matters to you, you're really saying, here's how I want to spend my time. And so when I look at how do I spend my time right now, that's actually what matters to me. Now, if I'm spending my time incessantly scrolling 
on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Threads or X, if I'm spending all of my time there, that's not evil or bad. It's showing you that is what I value. And I probably value that because I haven't found something that I value more than that. Something I'm willing to what? Suffer for. Because to be passionate about something simply means that I'm willing to suffer for it. That's the Latin root of the word passion, passus. It means suffering. And so someone who is passionate about something is willing to suffer for it. Now, beware of any easy dopamine hit, whether it's through social media or through junk food. Mm. What happens is you get the momentary burst of pleasure, but there's no suffering involved in the short term. Paradoxically, it actually leads to suffering in the long term. And the things that are short-term suffering lead to long-term equanimity on a long enough timeline. Good stuff, man. Kareen from Instagram has a question for us. As a designer, I have a hard time letting go of anything that's beautiful. From a bit of a selfish standpoint, I want things to go to someone who will appreciate them as much as I do. How can we control where the stuff we let go of goes? Now, I too am a control freak. Mm. But what I've learned is that appreciation, my willingness to appreciate the things that are in front of me, it loses all that magic when I try to control the appreciation. If I try to tell my daughter, you should be grateful right now, how grateful do you think she's going to be? If I look at TK and say, hey, TK, I want you to appreciate this podcast more. How likely is he to be more appreciative of this experience? But instead, if what we do is we create an experience that's worthy of appreciation, TK is more likely to appreciate being on the show Mm. than if I were to drag him kicking and screaming to appreciate how things are. (laughs) Well, I'll say the desire to control doesn't make you a control freak in the same way that the desire to eat doesn't make you a glutton. The desire to work hard as a man doesn't make you a hustle bro, right? The, the, the desire to, to exercise doesn't make you obsessive about your physical image. There's a healthy version of everything. There's an unhealthy version of everything and control falls in that category. There are some things in life we can and we should, and we do control and it's okay. When you're at home and you're colder than you want to be and you actually have the power to control the temperature, it's okay to exercise that ability that you have to change those dials and make it the way you want it to be. And And it's also okay to pause for a moment and say, maybe I don't need to control this or do I need to control this or would I benefit from sitting with this and experiencing it for a moment? Yeah, all of those, like, do I need to control it? Uh, Would I benefit from sitting with it for a moment? Or should I exercise my power to do something about it? All of those come from a place of mindfulness and intentionality, not from a bedrock assumption that one of these is morally superior to the others and all of the others are great evils, right? Yeah, if it's not 72 degrees in here, then it's (laughs) wrong. (laughs) That's right. And so what I find is, is, okay, you describe yourself as, what's the word you use? You said you're a control freak. 
I find there are many uses of that or many manifestations of that that make all of our lives easier. I'm very thankful for the ways in which you're a control freak. Maybe there are some areas where it's not always helpful, but man, there are some things I don't want to have to think about. I don't want to have to care about. And I know I speak more for people more than just me. And the way you come through and deliver things because you're a control freak, it's pretty freaking awesome. And a lot of us feel pretty grateful about it. And so when it comes to stuff, wanting to have some control over who gets your stuff, well, as Ryan always says, once you have it, it is yours. And you get to decide how you're going to get rid of it. You get to decide if you're just going to throw it in a dumpster, if you're going to set it on fire, if you're going to think about who might appreciate this, if you're going to give it to a used bookstore, if you're going to take it to Goodwill, you get to decide that. And if you have the time and the energy that you're willing to invest in making sure the probability is high that this gets in the hands of someone who fits your ideal, what's wrong with that? That's awesome. And so I, I actually find, you know, when it comes to books, for instance, I always like to think about who is someone that I know would appreciate this before I just generally give it away. Now, if I give it to a used bookstore, you know, I have to trust that the person that's willing to come in there and look at it and pay for it, that's the person who, who's meant to have it. But until I do that, until I give it away, I do have that choice. And I can say, hey, you know what? I think Hannah would really love this education book. She's really passionate about that, you know, and she's got the whole rebel educated thing going. I'm going to give this to her. Or you know what? I think based on my conversations with Isaac about philosophy, I think he'd really like this. And so you do get to have some of that control and there's nothing wrong with exercising that influence. I agree. Let's get back to the heart of the question here, because when you're overwhelmed, now she feels like her life is out of control. That's the irony of this, wanting to control the appreciation of others. I, I can't get rid of these things because I want someone else to appreciate it as much as I do. Well, you also can't control how much someone else appreciates those things. You may give it yeah. to someone and they're really excited about it, but a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, they're like, eh, whatever, don't really like it, don't care about it. Now, you can say, well, I failed and because they don't appreciate it, I did something wrong. It's better for me just to hold on to it. But clearly, you don't appreciate these things like you used to. And that's not wrong either. Mm. But you don't appreciate it right now. Yeah. Because you want to find it a new home. You're no longer appreciating those things that you once appreciated. And you're going to continue to appreciate them less as they make you feel like your life is out of control. It's really hard to appreciate chaos. Now, is it possible? Absolutely it is, right? In fact, there are some people who thrive in chaotic situations, but in the moment when it actually feels like chaos, by the way, the people who, who thrive in chaotic situations, they don't see it as chaos. They see it as excitement, thrills, right? And so it's a perspective thing. But when you feel like your life is out of control because you literally can't control the appreciation of others, it lends it to being unable to appreciate what's right there in front of you. And I think quite often what happens is we want to appreciate the big things, whether it's mm. the milestones in life, the I purchased a home or I bought a Tesla or whatever it is, right? And that's great. You can appreciate those things, but it's ultimately all, always about the small things. Yeah. If I can appreciate the small things, what's going on right here in front of me, that's the now. That's the moment. 
that's where all the appreciation is. All those other things, you can appreciate them too, but waiting for those things to happen actually takes us out of the right here and right now. Tough but important lesson I've learned entrepreneurially that to let go of a thing is also to let go of your ability to control how that thing gets used or what direction in which that thing grows. I've never left business behind to people that I didn't trust. I've never let it in, into hands that I didn't think were good hands. But in every case, part of letting go means you have to watch people do things that you wouldn't do or do things that you would do, but in a way that's different from how you would do it. And you don't get to be free from that thing unless you liberate yourself from having to be the manager of it, even though you no longer have it. And so even if you can find the right person to give something away to, you can't control how long it's under their possession. You can't control the moment they're, they're going to have a, a revelation where they say, I need to give it away to someone else. And you can't control how they're going to use it. If you really got to let it go, you got to let it go. Our next question is from Mandy on Twitter. I have minimized many parts of my life, but my curiosity has always led me down rabbit holes of information. I have a lot of knowledge and enjoy learning, but how do I curate my curiosity? I like that turn of phrase, to <laughs> curate my curiosity. That sounds like the blog of T.K. Coleman. <laughs> Curatedcuriosity.net or something like that. TK, so I have this idea that wisdom begets knowledge, but knowledge does not beget wisdom. Mm. I got this from Kapil Gupta. I have this essay. I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes for Mandy and anyone else who wants to read it. I'm just going to read a bit of an excerpt from this. It is called Wisdom Begets Stoicism. Stoicism does not beget wisdom. I'm just going to read a little bit from this one. When a human sees a magic trick, he is enthralled and excited. When the trick is uncovered, the excitement fades. Pause on that for a moment. I'm thinking about my daughter. She always wants to know how the magician did the trick. But as soon as I show her, it's like this look of disappointment almost on her face because the magic is no longer magical right now. It's just an illusion or uh, a turn of phrase or uh, a sleight of hand or whatever it might be, and it loses its magic. Returning to the text here. Excitement and emotion arise when something is not understood. As it is understood, one naturally becomes unfazed. One naturally becomes equanimous. He does not become equanimous because it is good to be equanimous. He becomes equanimous because he sees the whole of the thing without any gaps in his understanding. The wise man is naturally quiet, subdued, and largely silent. That reminds me of, I think it was last week, I said that silence is often the best explanation. Because we feel so compelled to be right for the sake of being right. But maybe I don't need to say anything at all. If I don't need to be right... It might more add more value if I just simply keep my mouth shut. <laughs> Return to text. The wise man is naturally quiet, subdued, and largely silent. There is a stoicism that washes over him. But if one attempts the reverse, all things become disordered. For if one follows the tenets of stoicism, he puts the cart before the horse, as they say. It becomes a heavy-handed and disingenuous affair. It becomes a doctrine, a rule, characteristics to emulate, 
an idea to follow. Such things do not lead to a natural way of being. They do not lead to wisdom. Later in the article, he he has these two lines, which I love. He says, all great things do not come by way of strategy, method, or goal. They come by way of side effect. And I found that that is really true in my creative pursuits. Personally, I've seen we've accidentally had things that go wild and so many people share. Our first documentary, Minimalism, 80 million people watched that on Netflix and over 4 million of you have watched it on YouTube now. But in context, the last episode of Seinfeld was seen by 75 million people. Wow. So that's a lot of people who saw that, right? We had no intention on reaching even a million people with that film. It was a side effect. There was not a method or a strategy that we followed. We simply piled into a car and started filming. Now, for the mechanical aspect, sure. Here's how you turn on the camera. Here's how you focus the lens. Yes, strategies work well for that. Yeah. But for going beyond that, what does that mean? Well, when I get back to Mandy's question, I go down the rabbit holes of information. I have a lot of knowledge and enjoy learning, but how, I, how do I curate my curiosity? Mm. And so here's what happens. Why did I say that we're talking about the stoicism thing and, and wisdom? Wisdom begets knowledge, but knowledge does not beget wisdom. Meaning you can get a whole bunch of information. You yeah. can read Wikipedia for 14 hours a day every day and have a bunch of information clutter in your life, but not be wiser for it. In fact, you can be less wise because you're spending your time gathering information. When I teach my writing students at howtowritebetter.org, I often teach them that research is not writing. Now, I'm not saying don't research. That's a type of binary thinking as well. What I'm saying is that we often will get distracted by the research and not do the meaningful work that is required for writing, sitting in the chair, composing, putting the words on the page, and then editing the words. That is the writing process. Research is over and above that. Yeah. I think knowledge is, I think of knowledge as a set of directions, and I think of wisdom as a sense of direction. And curiosity leads to knowledge, but it best leads to knowledge when it's anchored in wisdom. So as an analogy, a good friend of mine has a pug and this pug, he will eat whatever you give him and he will not stop no matter what it is you give him. So the pug is curiosity. The food you give him is knowledge and he'll just eat it up, whatever it is you give him. What you choose to give him when you choose it to give it to him and how much of it you give to him, that's wisdom. And it's the same thing in our own relationship to curiosity. I was online the other day and I'm going to watch something on YouTube and I'm pretty deliberate about what I want to watch. But as I'm scrolling, I see a recommendation and it's about what's really wrong with Jamie Foxx and why did everyone try to keep this a secret from us? And what does it say about the hidden agenda? Clickbait on top of clickbait. And man, my curiosity like that pug was like, I'm ready. But wisdom said, no, I'm not going to give you that. 
not because I think it would be a sin for you to click on that, not because I think it would make you an evil person to click on that, not because I have anything negative to say about whoever made that video or the millions of people who are probably gonna watch it and talk about it. No, it's because I know where I'm going. Information means formation, how you are being shaped, how you are being molded, how you are being formed and inwardly, which is why transformation means to change, right? You are changing your form. Information means how you are inwardly forming or shaping or molding yourself. And all information does not lead to the kind of inward formation that you want to have. And wisdom is when you engage information by asking yourself, do I want to be shaped and molded in the direction that this content is going to shape and mold me? And I can make that decision without condemning, criticizing, or judging anything. But as you and I have often discussed, what is needed during this day and time, unlike any other perhaps, given the information age, the information explosion, the information anxiety, is a philosophy of attention. Because as we've talked about before, attention is like money. If you're willing to spend it on anything, you'll eventually be duped out of everything. So the question is not, what are you going to pay attention to? Or what are you reading right now? Or what are you listening right now? The real question that defines you is, what are you going to deliberately choose to ignore? Alabama, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Yes, indeed. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Threads, and Twitter. They're calling it X now. They changed the name to X, TK. Now, does that mean when we do on the private podcast, we do TK's Tweet of the Week occasionally? I was talking to Professor Sean about this yesterday. We're going to start doing TK's ex of the week. We're going to bring ex-girlfriends on the podcast and interview them about your flaws. Well, that means when I'm at home, my computer, my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm online checking out my exes. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, during the lightning round, we each have 60 seconds to answer your question with a short shareable, less than a 140 character response. We put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes over at theminimalists.com so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. I think Nicodemus will join us next week for that lightning round. But today we have a question from Ginny. Why do we feel so resistant to making end of life plans? Writing wills, assignments of a power of attorney, and death directives seem pretty straightforward. Mm. So why do we hesitate to be proactive about it? TK, it's true that we are scared to death of death. In fact, there's an essay on theminimalists.com with that very same title. And it's about all of the planning that I've done for my own death with respect to my last will, my uh, living will, et cetera, et cetera all of the planning that needs to happen. Let's give TK 60 seconds so he can expand for us. Yeah, um, you can't make a plan without facing the pain. To plan for the future means you have to acknowledge the possibilities that you're planning for. And when it comes to death, it's not just a possibility, it's an inevitability. And there's nothing more scary for us to confront than the inevitability of this life coming to an end. Think about our horror movies, for example. There are few exceptions, but for the most part, you don't have horror movies about some guy stealing your money or, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's about that one thing that frightens us the most. It's about death. 
And I think about the proverb that says, it's better for a person to attend a funeral than a party because it's in attending the funeral that we contemplate our in. Death forces us to really think about how we're living. And if our life is filled with emptiness or things that try to drown out the emptiness, well, when you plan for your death, you have to look at that and that changes how you live. And so I think people are afraid of planning for death because it forces them to change how they live. The solution, the words of Ram Das, acknowledge that death is not an outrage. It's an invitation for us to consider how deeply and authentically we truly want to live. I think that's beautiful because if we did live forever, if we had infinite amount of money, we wouldn't be afraid of someone stealing the money from us, right? What a lame horror flick that would be (laughs) if I had infinite money and then someone robbed me. So what? I still have all the money I'll ever need. And the same would be true with respect to life. But we don't have that. We have a finite amount of time here. Now, we don't know exactly how long we have. Unfortunately, what we do is we pretend that we have forever. And then when we're confronted with something difficult like death, in fact, there are really two fears that we all seem to share. The two things we are most terrified of. The first one is death. The second one is humiliation. Now, there's a bunch of different ways that we can be humiliated. You hear people say they have a a deadly fear of public speaking. It's not the public speaking they're afraid of. It's the humiliation Mm. that they're afraid of. Jed McKenna has this great quote. He said, all fear is ultimately fear of no self. Mm. And if I were to append that at all, I would say humiliation is the death of one's own self-image. Because here's what what happens. We're afraid of death because we're afraid of losing our self. But when you realize there isn't a self, it's pretty hard to be humiliated. It's also, it's hard to be afraid of death. Death is a type of letting go. And what we're really afraid of here is letting go in general. We won't let go of the things that are getting in the way. We won't let go of the things that we think make us who we are. In fact, that's often the reason that we consume a bunch of useless things is it's going to improve or better myself. Mm. I am this person if I have these things. But no, I'm this person with or without those things. And the same thing is true with respect to to death. We're afraid of not having a self. The reason I won't let go of my things is because I'm afraid I'm letting go of myself. The reason we're afraid of death is we're afraid I'm letting go of myself. But when you recognize there isn't a coherent, fixed self that's forever changing, then death is just part of the process. We're going to talk more about death during the added value segment on the private podcast today because I have two added values for you. And at first, you're going to think I'm talking about pessimism or nihilism, but I'm actually going to be talking about when everything matters too much to you, then we get weighed down with a different type of clutter, significance clutter, we might call that. We're going to check in with the Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. I don't have anything to promote, so here's one thing that's going on. I'm just happy. (laughs) 
and is joyously unexpected. Like I'm doing well. Hey, by the way, man, I appreciate your ability to say that without feeling guilty for it, without feeling apologetic for it, and without feeling like you're going to jinx yourself by saying it. I'm happy is one of the hardest things to say, to give yourself permission to say. It's incredibly difficult. I don't want to jinx it, but I'm happy. My life isn't perfect, but I'm happy. I don't want you to misunderstand me as being somebody who has an easy life now. Believe me, I've got a lot of reasons to be unhappy, but I'm happy. I'm happy, but I don't deserve it. Right, right. (laughs) And so I'm sorry that I'm happy. And if it hurts you that I'm happy, I apologize for that as well. And no disrespect to anybody that's got a hard time being happy. I'm just just happy. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm happy. Mm. I'm happy y'all are here. I'm happy y'all are listening. I'm grateful for it as well. And so uh, right here, right now, I'm happy. Every, uh, the first Friday of every month, we do something we call the Friday Afternoon Minimalist Zooms. We affectionately call them FAMS. Me and TK and Ryan Nicodemus and Malabama and Danny Unknown and Professor Sean. And we'll get post-production Peter in there as well. We have a Zoom call with our patrons. Anyone who subscribes to the video version of the podcast, we have these conversations with you. It bridges the space between live stream because it's not a live stream. And it's not really a live event, but it feels much more like a live event because we can get in there and we can wax philosophical. We can have conversations among ourselves, but then the other people show up. Now, you don't have to show up in terms of you don't have to turn your camera on. You can leave your microphone off, your camera off. You can be the voyeur fly on the wall if you'd like. A lot of people show up and they just watch. And that's great too. Or you can participate. You can ask a question. You can give a testimonial. You can talk about where you are and letting go. And you can join the chat as well. There's a whole world, a whole community that has developed in the chat for these things. So it's only about 100 or 200 of us that join at a time. You can come on screen. You can have a conversation with us the first Friday of every month. And while we're doing that, we don't have time to answer necessarily every question. So Malabama's over there in the chat and she's collecting some of your chat questions that Ryan and TK and I didn't get to. What do you got for us today, Malabama? This question comes from Kathy. My youngest kid has just moved back home from college to regain financial stability. There is a history of disrespectful talk and disregard for our home. So I made a written agreement for the terms of her stay. How can I best help her become independent enough to move out while also keeping the peace with this toxic relationship? TK, man, I'm just thinking, I don't have any advice for Kathy, but I do have some observations about and some insights about how I would run my own life. In fact, I just had a conversation with Ella about something pretty similar yesterday. We got this new fly swatter that it's an electric fly swatter. Now, oh, there's boy. A, I, I hate <laughs> buying things like this. We have this fly infestation in one area. It's on our patio where Bex and I love to, in the mornings, we'll go out and drink some coffee and read as the sun is coming up. And then as the sun comes up, there are like, not a ton, but there's like 12 flies every day, always. It's like they're checking in for work or something. (laughs) And they're these really small, super fast flies. So you can't just swat them with our normal, amazing fly swatter. We have this Amish fly swatter, which... I get immense value from. I am able to take out my enemies in one fell swoop, except (laughs) these 12 enemies. (laughs) And so we got this electric one and we charge it up and Ella's out on the porch swatting them. And you get this satisfying, like as soon as you get one, they're dead. And she's like, I just feel like I really want to touch a person with this. I said, well, what do you think would happen if you touched a person? 
She's like, well, I, I kind of want to touch it myself. I'm like, you can, but you know, there's a consequence. Something will happen, right? What do you think will happen? She's like, I think I'll get shocked. Oh, you'll get shocked. Yeah, you'd probably learn a lesson not to do it again, right? And I said, what do you think would happen if you did it to someone else? Because she was expressing interest to like hit me or her mom with it, like touch us with it. What do you think would happen? She's like, well, I think it would hurt you. I said, what do you think would happen if you hurt us over and over again? She's like, I don't know. I said, you wouldn't be living with us. And now she's 10, so I'm going to have to deal with it and I'll, I'll put up the boundaries there. But if she's 18 and she's touching me with the electric fly swatter, she's not going to live there because she's not respecting a boundary I've set up. Now, of course, if I, she does it once and that's where I have to erect the boundary, fine. But you're talking about, I know you love your daughter, but you might have to love her from a distance, Kathy, because if she's not able to respect you, well, you don't owe her any respect in return. Mm, Yeah. I'm going to state something that I have no doubt is true, but it's controversial because it confronts something that we don't like to talk about as being true. And here it is. Sometimes children behave in ways that make us not like them. And if you tell yourself a narrative that says it is immoral for me to ever feel like I don't like my children, when you struggle with the sensation of not liking them, you will start to resent them for doing the things that make you not like them. It's only when you give yourself the freedom to be honest about how you really feel that true maturity and integrity becomes possible because integrity is not me always feeling like I like you. It's being committed to doing the right thing even when I don't. You never know how much you love someone until they give you a reason not to. When I worked at the restaurant and I served tables, there were some times where my customers would behave in ways that would make me not like them, but I still chose to be professional in my interactions with them. And I am mature. I am a man of integrity, not because I always felt warm and fluffy feelings towards people, but because sometimes I felt I don't like you at all, but I showed up and I still did the right thing. I think that's such a key part of parenting, being honest with yourself, saying, hey, you know what? That thing they did, that's distasteful to me. And I have the right to to think that that's distasteful. And I have the right to not like everything that my kid does. Just because my kid does something doesn't mean I have to like it. I can be honest about the things they do in the same way that I'm honest about the behavior of people that are not my children. And that's such an important foundation from which you can be able to communicate with them and love them. Love isn't always about feeling warmly towards them. The last thing I'll say really quickly is I think your boundaries are a great start, but the boundaries won't be effective if you don't give yourself permission to actually stand by them. You got to be committed to stand standing by them, not just communicating them and also give yourself permission to evolve them. If something happens that you didn't account for in your written agreement, you do have the right as the owner of that household to say, hey, this isn't working. We need to revisit because our interactions have helped me to realize that there's another boundary that I need to establish with you. And you can do that in a loving way not in a way that is accusatory or blaming them. And quite often what happens when these situations get tense, they get emotional and then you get fired up and they get fired up and it escalates and escalates and escalates. And we turn something that was relatively small, a minor indiscretion or a minor bit of disrespect. And we turn it into something where it's World War III. DK, I love what you said about 
yeah, there, there will be times where you don't like your kid. I would take it even a step further. It's not your job to like your kid. Liking your kid is a byproduct of something else. As a parent, it is your job to protect your kid, to set up boundaries for your kid, to love your kid. It's not your job to be their best friend. Alabama, what else you got for us? Here's a minimalist insight from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Susan from San Diego, and my uh, tip and listener insight is just a spin on your minimalism game. You know, kids' schedules and energy levels change a lot um, from day to day, and kids don't always have the time or the bandwidth to focus on purging. Um, So for my kids, what I did is I wrote out the numbers 1 through 31 on a sheet of paper, and each day they got to choose how many items they wanted to minimize, and then they would just cross off that number uh, so they knew that they had done that number and didn't repeat it. Um, So before they would get um, burnt out, if I tried to make them do a specific number each day, uh, this way they could... On a busy day when they didn't have much time, they could pick a smaller number on a day where they had a lot of time to spare um, to work on their room or in the closets. Uh, they could pick a bigger number and knock that out when the time was right for them. I just thought that tip might work well for your other listeners um, that have kids who um, maybe also can e- easily get burnt out um, by trying to do too many large numbers um, all at once. Welcome back, y'all. We, let's check back in with that Patreon live stream, the Friday afternoon minimal Zooms chat. Many of you dropped your questions and comments in that chat. Let's get to another one right now. Here's one from Jessica. Can you tell us more about your cold plunge? What temperature <laughs> do you keep it at? I do a cold <laughs> plunge every day. This is not a sponsor of our podcast. The brand that I use and I like is a rather expensive one called Mirazco. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'm not affiliated with them in any way, and I paid full price for my cold plunge. It's in my backyard. Before I did that, I used to cold plunge just in my bathtub. And so I've been cold plunging since like 2011 or so. I do it every day now because I have easy access to it. I used to do it um, just because I really enjoyed it. There's also a place here in West Hollywood that we go to called Voda Spa, and it's a Russian bathhouse, and they have four different saunas. One gets up to 220 degrees. Too hot. Uh, 220. Nope. De- Oof. <laughs> it's, the, it's the dry sauna, the ban- banya, I believe they call it. And, uh, and you get into a cold plunge immediately after that. And it is euphoric. I had Danny up at the house, he and his girl, um, a few weeks ago, and they went from our sauna to our cold plunge. And they, I mean, you should have seen how euphoric they were. Danny was laying on the concrete patio (laughs) and and just like he had been crucified (laughs) with like, and and he was so elated in the moment. Talk about living in the moment. It really brings you, brings you there. Um, If you want a cheaper alternative, because getting in a cold is accessible to anyone. I had to save up for a year to buy that cold plunge and because I don't go into debt. So I waited a year to buy it. And um, you can just get a trough at your local Home Depot or Lowe's and fill it with water and ice, water from a hose and ice from you. You just go buy ice at the store. That's what I used to do in my bathtub. I would, I'd get a hundred pounds or 70 pounds of ice 
put it in the bathtub, fill it with cold water. In a pinch, you could just use a cold shower. If it's summertime and you live somewhere hot, it's not really going to get to the temperature you need. It needs to be below 55 degrees if you want to get the uh, scientifically beneficial effects of cold thermogenesis. Uh, to answer the question directly, who asked the question? Jessica. Jessica, my my uh, cold plunge, uh, the Morozcos, they make ice on their own. And so it's 32 degrees. It's, it's mm. frozen. And mm. so I often have to chip the ice away in order to get in. And it is euphoric. I do it first thing in the morning quite often. I did it this morning at 4 a.m. And what's beautiful about it is it's probably the most difficult thing I have to do all day. It's not nearly as difficult now because I do it every day. First time I got in, I thought I was dying. Like, this is different, right? And it's not just a cold shower. Although cold showers in Montana are pretty cold. You do a cold shower in Montana in the winter, Mm. it is cold. Hey, how long are you in it for? So uh, yesterday I did eight minutes. Um, Eight minutes. And and what do you like? Is it like laying in the pool? Like, what's the position like? Are you? Yeah, yeah. Doggy style. This is a family show. <laughs> Am I doing it wrong? Yeah, you're doing it all the way wrong. <laughs> no, I'm, you just lay back. It's kind of like a lounge chair. You're not, you don't feel like you're lounging though. Yeah. It's neck down in the ice. And usually like this morning I did three minutes. Uh, I tend to do where you get the most benefit is three minutes. Beyond that, it trains your psyche and it's really good for inflammation. I have an autoimmune disease. So if anyone who deals with chronic inflammation, fix your diet first, start grounding second, and then ice baths third have really helped me. Those three things have helped me more than anything else. Mm. No inflammatory foods. So uh, something like our food clutter episode with Paul Saladino. So meat and fruits and vegetables, if they don't inflame you, most vegetables, unfortunately, have oxalates and the oxalates inflame me personally. My wife gets by fine with a lot more plants in her diet. So that was really helpful with my inflammation. Grounding, we're on earthing mats right now, earthing.com, also not affiliated with them, but grounding has helped immensely. I just ordered a grounding mat for TK so that he has one to sleep on at night. Uh, Man, totally changed my pain. My pain went from a 10 to a 2 in the mornings. And then whatever remaining inflammation I have, I've completely knocked it out with a daily ice bath. I did two ice baths yesterday. And so I did a five-minute one, a three-minute one. That's how I got to the eight minutes. And um, you work your way up to that. Someone like Wim Hof, whom we've done a YouTube video with in the past, a breathing exercise technique, he can do an hour. Now, if I just put TK in there for an hour, he'd die. You train your body up to it. But I try to get my daughter in there. She'll have a really hot day out in the sun, and then she'll want to go in there. But even she panics when she wants to go in. And so she won't stay in for more than 10 seconds. The weird thing is, at about 90 seconds, the flight response leaves your body. And then you start to just... you recognize this isn't going to kill me. And the best I feel every day is the three minutes after I get out of it. Because my body's like, oh, you're okay. And the inflammation has been washed out of your body. You don't need a fancy cold plunge for that. They make something called the Ice Barrel, which is a much cheaper version of the Morozco that I have. You can buy those relatively inexpensively. It doesn't have the same filtration system or whatever. Or you can just go to Home Depot, buy a trough, put it in your backyard, or use your bathtub at home if you want to try it out. And then if it makes sense, you want to do it every single day, then yeah, you can upgrade to something like the Morozco. I think one of the the problems people often do is they will 
I really want to do an ice bath. I'm, I have to go get the best thing. And they try it out for a day or a week. And they're like, ah, it's not for me. I'm not really going to do it. It's like the treadmill. When someone <laughs> buys a treadmill right. and they use it for a week or for a month. And January 1st, it sounds great. But on July 1st, it's like, ah, just collecting dust now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It'd be the worst purchase I could have made to spend a few, several thousand dollars on an ice bath if I never used it. Right now, it's the best purchase in my life. I, I, if I own one thing that I know that I want, no matter where I live, it is an ice bath. I love using it in the winter, especially. Yeah, It'll be freezing, literally freezing outside. Up in Ohio, it gets cold. So it'll be 32 degrees outside. And I get into that icy water, look up at the stars. And it's the most challenging thing that I do all day. And everything from there is like, eh, not as hard as that ice bath as I did this morning. Wow. So if we get a minimalism mansion, you'll have an ice bath and right next to you, I'll have my hot tub. <laughs> we could talk across the room. Well, next time I get you up to Ojai, eventually, we will, uh, so we do contrast therapy. So I also saved up for about a year, nine months or so, 10 months for a outdoor sauna um, from a place called Clear Light. And again, not a sponsor. I don't have anything. I'm not affiliated with them anyway. I paid regular price. They don't even know who you are. Yeah, I mean, they did, but that's a different thing. And they're like, can we get you in our, you know, uh, can we do ads on your podcast and we'll give you a discount? I said, no, I'll talk about it if I enjoy it. And so I have a sauna and we do contrast therapy. And so I'll get in the sauna for 25 minutes and I'll get in the cold plunge for five minutes and you go back and forth. And that's what Danny was doing Mm. when he was up there. And it is euphoric. It puts you in a completely different state, grounds you in the moment. And all those worries you thought you had, they just dissipate. Will it improve my jump shot? <laughs> I don't know that you can get a better jump shot. <laughs> well played. Because you're hopeless. Oh. oh. Now that is a Milburn. <laughs> <laughs> oh. TK, I got some talk aboutables for you. What are we talking about? Why do we cling to junk? Eventually, even your trophies become garbage. Take a look at this video with Mike Tyson. Stuff. This is history here. Mm, you're, you're history. This is garbage. I can say I bled for garbage. <laughs> at one time it meant a lot. When you're just a young kid, this is everything to you. But then you realize your priorities change. And you just want your children to be happy and do nice things. And that makes you happy. This is nothing. <laughs> oh, TK. First off, several people sent me this video. Danny sent it to me. Then Nicodemus, as usual, sent it to me three days later. (laughs) (laughs) After the whole internet had seen it, he finally latched on to it. (laughs) And he sent it to me from some Reddit post. R slash conspiracy. (laughs) That's TK's Reddit, the thread that he likes. (laughs) It's his subreddit. (laughs) But let's talk about this. The things that become our trophies... And we're so proud of. If you're just listening to the audio version of the podcast, by the way, we watched a video of Mike Tyson looking at a table of his old gloves and and championship belts and trophies. And he starts flipping them over and saying, no, this is garbage. So our awards that seem so precious to us in the moment because they commemorate a precious moment. They turn into garbage when we just cling to the trophies, the awards, the successes, the status symbols, because we realize that 
is not the championship. It's just a representation of something I did in the past. I'm sure there's some young boxer somewhere training, hoping, dreaming to acquire all that same garbage. I'm curious, do you believe there are some forms of garbage we can only recognize as such when we procure them? Yeah, that's a great question. Remember the second time we had Jeanette McCurdy on the podcast, she was finishing writing her book, which is called I'm Glad My Mom Died. Mm. And she's like, I'm just so afraid it's going to be trash. And I said, well, it is. And she was like, well, yeah, but like, I mean, like the finished product is going to be trash. Yeah, it will be. Mm. What What did I mean by that? What I meant is that A, it will be trash to someone. Like someone's not going to like it. And that's not a compelling reason for me to not write a book. If I am writing a book so that everyone will like it, I will never write a book. But also, it will be trash in the sense that to you, eventually, you're going to be like, oh yeah, it's a neat thing I did, but it doesn't really matter that much to me anymore. The things I enjoy right now will be trash tomorrow. The food that I eat produces some sort of trash waste, right? Trash isn't a bad thing. It just means that something that we used has now gone to waste. And that's okay. But when we cling to it, what what Mike Tyson was doing there is he was saying, I'm not clinging to this anymore. That's who I was. It's not who I'm going to be. In order for me to be the person I want to be, I have to let go of the past. Yeah. And you know, wisdom is a funny thing. It can be the same wisdom can dwell in two different people for entirely two different reasons, uh, for entirely, entirely different paths. You know, I imagine that the reason he's able to look at that and say it's trash is because when he was pursuing it, he was chasing something. And those trophies represented the best instantiation of what it was he was really after. And once he had it, he realized, wait, there's a hunger in me that is still not satisfied. Oh, it's the hunger for a deeper kind of legacy, to have children, to cultivate good human beings, to see them prosper and do well in the world. That's really what I'm after. And so we all have these different things that symbolize for us that Z good, that ultimate end. And sometimes in the chasing after those things, if we're lucky enough to acquire them, then we're blessed with the opportunity to see that it's deeper than that. And maybe sometimes the tragedy of not getting what you want is that maybe you never get the chance to see how lacking it is in its ability to truly satisfy you. Yeah, I had to get everything I thought I wanted to realize that everything I wanted wasn't actually what I wanted. Those things can be a nice byproduct. Nothing wrong with owning a Lexus. It's a fine piece of engineering, right? But the Lexus is not the point of living. And one other thing, the beautiful thing about wisdom is that it is not, it does not belong to the privileged, however you define privilege. You know, there's a, there's a proverb that speaks of wisdom as the voice of a woman who says she cries out to people when they're in the marketplace, hear me, listen to me, spend time with me. Every single day, wisdom is calling us while we're chasing those things, whether we get them or not. Wisdom doesn't say, 
I'll reveal my truth to you. I will give you my insights when you get everything you want and you see that it can't satisfy. Wisdom is calling out to us even as we're chasing those things. And it's saying, just take a break and hear me out. And maybe I'll contextualize your chasing in such a way so that you begin to pursue different things or you find a deeper kind of rest that isn't found in the chasing after things. I don't have time for wisdom. I'm headed to the Gucci store. (laughs) (laughs) Shout out to Mike Tyson. Um, I really enjoy listening to him on his podcast. It's really, I I grew up in the Mike Tyson uh, golden age of boxing where I watched him emerge and become that youngest champion. And I just watched his whole journey. And it's just so interesting to see him continuing to deepen his reflections on life and the way he is honest about all of his challenges and his failures and the way he wrestles with things. He's a man that never claims to be or pretends to be perfect. And just, uh, it's just interesting watching Mike Tyson after growing up, watching him in the ring, seeing what he's doing outside the ring. In order to grow, he had to let go of those past accomplishments Mm -hmm. because he realized that once you've reached that peak, that pinnacle, that apex of life, if you keep staring at it, you're not going to get anywhere from there. And also, I think quite often what happens, this has happened with me a lot, is it's also taking time to pause at the top of the mountain there and saying, oh, yeah, you can acknowledge this. And the trophy is a byproduct of this, but it is not the point. I didn't do this simply for the trophy. Yeah. I got one more talk aboutable for you. Why aren't more of us disappointed with this fake society that we've created? Take a look at this clip from Mr. Robot. What is it about society that disappoints you so much? Oh, I don't know. Is it that we collectively thought Steve Jobs was a great man, even when we knew he made billions off the backs of children? Or maybe it's that it feels like all our heroes are counterfeit. The world itself's just one big hoax. Spamming each other with our burning commentary of bullshit masquerading as insight. Our social media faking as intimacy. Or is it that we voted for this? Not with our rigged elections, but with our things, our property, our money. I'm not saying anything new, we all know why. We do this not because Hunger Games books makes us happy, but because we want to be sedated. Because it's painful not to pretend. Because we're cowards. It's painful not to pretend. And that's what makes us cowards. We want to be sedated. I want to be sedated. That song is about consumerism in a way, right? And we are sedated by going to the Gucci store or the Prada store or did you see that new Balenciaga belt that I have? Do you see the Louis Vuitton sneakers he was wearing? We're sedated with consumer purchases. And I love what he said here. We voted for this. Mm. And so it's easy to blame society, but we are a part of that society that ultimately voted for this, not through our political votes. That's part of it but through our everyday actions and indiscretions. You know, it's easy and common to criticize the 
vanity of someone that always needs to be seen. I want to be a star. I want to have all the clicks. I want a million likes. I want to be an influencer. Oh, it's so fun to pick on that one. But there's another more subtle form of vanity, and it's the need to never be seen, the need to avoid ever being noticed, the need to hide in the back of the class, the need to always escape the spotlight of scrutiny. And so many beliefs are chosen from a place of having that need. I'm not going to believe something that actually makes sense to me. I'm not going to subscribe to the ideas that resonate with me. I'm going to pick my beliefs based on what will keep me out of trouble, what will keep me from being questioned or scrutinized or ever thought of as weird. And part of why we have this fake world is because you have a bunch of people pretending to believe things that they know doesn't make any sense because they have a need to be unseen, a need to be invisible, a need to fit in. I enjoy this show a lot because it dissects a lot of what you're talking about. Mr. Robot is a show that came out, I don't know, 2010-ish, 2012, and there were four seasons of it, and I thought it was an outstanding show. The first season and the final season are both outstanding. And these, like, I, I look at it, it's like Fight Club, but for computer programmers in a way. It has a lot of the similar ideologies that Chuck Palahniuk had in Fight Club in his book that was eventually turned into the film with Ed Norton and Brad Pitt. This looks at it from a different perspective. And I don't think one is necessarily better than the other, but there's a a deeper understanding in this show that allows us to look at more than just the surface level consumerism, but mm. seeing what's behind it, right? He talked about Steve Jobs building a billion, multi-billion or trillion dollar empire now on the backs of children, children workers. And yet, I know I can stand up here in grandstand and say that's awful, but then I can, as soon as we're done recording, go over to my iPhone and turn it back on, right? So it's not that I'm immune from it. I'm a part of the problem. And I think that's what this clip illustrates is, yeah, we're all part of, of some problem. And it takes a whole lot of hubris to pretend that, I, that I'm that i not. Yeah, to the point of you voted for this or we voted for this, it's interesting. It makes me wonder, would people actually vote for an honest candidate? And when I say honest candidate, someone who breaks all the rules in terms of pretending to believe the things that they know they need to pretend to believe in order to be taken seriously. Can you imagine a candidate who says, hey, look, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I'm a Christian. I haven't been to church in years and I don't believe any of that stuff. Um, and no, I'm not uh, faithful to my wife and my kids will probably say I'm a terrible dad. But none of that has anything to do with policy. If you look at my record, I'm the best in the business. I know exactly what I'm doing and I can make great decisions for this country. By the way, our economy is absolutely crap and it's not the last guy's fault. It's actually the last 10 guys. They've all done trash and there is no way, even if I'm here for eight years, that I'm going to get us going, you know, where we need to be. I can help move us in the right direction, but we're kind of screwed with that. So here are three things that I'll help us focus on that I think we can improve. Would we ever elect that person? Part of what we enjoy doing is playing a game of like, hey man, just kind of tell me a little bit of what I want to hear and, you know, make me feel better about it. You yeah. I, I need you to be my counselor in a way. <laughs> yeah. Don't be too honest. Right. Be honest, but don't be too honest. Like, hey, TK, you need to get your shit together. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks, man. I need somebody like that. No, no, I'm serious. 
you need you need to, you need to do this. Hey, look, brother, easy. Don't be too honest. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> We're gonna skip our sucky ad this week because I have a minimalist home tour for you. This is minimalist home tour number forty-eight. We just sent this out to you via email. We're calling this one. Let there be lightness. Ah. And you feel so light looking at it. This is so beautiful. This is from Trinda. What did Trinda have to say in her brief note? This is for her dining room. She said, the sun is great for natural mood enhancing lighting. So enjoying seeing all the minimalist spaces. Oh, me too. And my gosh, this is like, I, I titled this, let there be lightness because there is a lot of light that is flowing in here. And you have the same exact um, light above your kitchen table as me as well. So that's that Nelson light. Bravo, Trenda. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this, that it feels light. It's not just full of light, but it's full of lightness and airy quality to the living space. Mm-hmm. And that's what I enjoy personally. Now, someone else might want a real dense, populated, maximalist space. Fine. But it's not for me. It could be yep. for you. Great. But I enjoy that. And that's what I feel when I look at this space. Yeah, I I mean, for me, I want my home to feel like a place of refuge where, you you know, that sensation you get if you walk in and maybe you got a backpack on or you got a coat on or even your shoes and you just take your shoes off, you take that backpack off or you take that coat off and you hang it up. It's like you're you're not quite home until you take something off, right? And, And sort of sink in. This, this I immediately just the- take my pants off. I dress like <laughs> Winnie the Pooh around the house. <laughs> A true minimalist. Anyway, point completely well, one, butchered. This picture- one might say maximalist. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thanks for the photo. Uh, it definitely gives me that feeling of. Don't share that photo. That I, <laughs> I, I, I can't escape. Like, I'm trying. Every judo move I know to get out of this moment, he keeps just blocking. Like, no, you're staying in this space. <laughs> Trinda, I love your home. I think it is stunning. Uh, brava to you. And it strikes me when people see something like this, I guarantee one of the comments will be, yeah, like anyone actually lives like that. <laughs> yes, they do. I can attest. They actually do live like that. Yeah. You can live like that without a super abundance, an overabundance, without excess. You can have the appropriate number of things for you, and you can have a space that is basking in light and in lightness. Yeah, and by the way, when anyone says, uh, yeah, like anyone actually lives like that, what they're really saying is, hey, I can't believe that because that's just not something that I see in my reality. So anytime you share pictures like this, you're, help, you're helping to expand people's concept of reality and you're giving other people new ideas on the possibilities for how they can organize their lives. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Alabama, let's read some more about less. Let's do it. Professor Sean sent this to me. Uh, this is from Les Mis, the, the book itself. This is from page 861, Sean. Weird flex, but yeah. okay. It's a big book. Yeah. I, he, he actually, I was using it as a step stool earlier. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that is kind of a flex for him to pick A61. He wants us to, he wants to let us know that he's read the whole thing. <laughs> it took me a month and a half at least. Uh, just That's to find fast. this one excerpt. Now, 
<laughs> now we were in the studio last last Thursday and uh, he's like, hey, can I read you like three or four passages from this book? It's just so beautifully written. And he read a few to me and they were beautiful. But this one stood out to me, especially in light of today's conversation. So Alabama, take it away. Are you what is called a happy man? Yes. <laughs> well, you are sad every day. Also true. Each day has its own great grief or its little care. Yesterday, you were trembling for health that is dear to you. Mm -hmm. Today, you fear for your own. Mm -hmm. Tomorrow, it will be anxiety about money. Mm -hmm. The day after tomorrow, the diatribe of a slanderer. The day after that, the misfortune of some friend. Then the prevailing weather, then something that has been broken or lost. Then a pleasure with which your conscience and your vertebral column reproach you. Again, mm -hmm the course of public affairs, this without reckoning in the pains of the heart. And so it goes on. One cloud is dispelled, another forms. There is hardly one day out of a hundred which is wholly joyous and sunny. And you belong to that small class who are happy. As for the rest of mankind, stagnating night rests upon them. Mm. Oof. And there's an interesting pessimism in this, right? Because it presupposes that a cloud is a bad thing. But just two days ago, I was really hot up in Ojai. It was like approaching 100 degrees, I think. And I got such a beautiful break from the sun when I was outside when a cloud came over. And it gave me a little bit of shade in a spot where I didn't have access to the shade. And so I was actually thankful for that cloud. I can also be thankful for the clouds when it rains and it produces the rain that we need for the drinking water that we need. If we didn't have those rain clouds, I might not have the water that I need to sustain myself, right? I, under, I understand when people like Capillo talk about happiness being a farce or a fraud or someone like Jed McKenna who talks about enlightenment is not perpetual bliss or happiness, right? Because... It is possible to experience joy, but also experience the full range of emotions. I wrote about this mm -hmm. in our last book, Love People Use Things, where I talk about the distinct difference between pleasure, contentment, happiness, and joy. The first three are fleeting, but joy doesn't have to be. Joy can be a disposition toward life, and it can make room for grief and for sorrow, and for happiness, and for pleasure, and for discomfort, and every emotion and feeling in between. That's right. Um, in a book that I'm working on right now, Emotional Clutter, which you talked about a couple episodes ago, um, I delve into the concept of emotional versatility as a viable alternative to happiness, where the goal isn't to feel good all the time, but to develop a harmonious relationship to the entirety of the emotional spectrum. And one of the good things about being reminded of just how fragile those moments of glee are is that they help us anchor our sense of being into something that is more fundamental, something that doesn't require the weather to meet our every expectation, that doesn't require every person to always behave in ways that are predictable and easy to control. Yeah, and so... Those pains that we experience, there's one type of pain where someone has inflicted pain on us or life has simply inflicted pain on us. That's one thing. But the truth is we go seeking 
that pain. We seek our own suffering 99.9% of the time. We look for things. When everything is harmonious, we look for things to knock us out of balance. We look for things to be upset by. We get onto social media and scroll for something. I've got to find outrage here somewhere. Mm. I've got to be concerned about something. I need to be informed about the things that are really making me angry. But if I just turned it off, if I paused, I turned it off, maybe I'm already happy. And maybe those other things aren't going to amplify my happiness. They're going to clutter my happiness and they're going to amplify my suffering. That's right. And, and the we look for things observation isn't about insensitive to, insensitively saying, if you feel any misery, it's because you woke up this morning and you decided that you wanted to be miserable or you're such a lazy, unthinking lout that you're making yourself miserable. No, it's even in our best moments when, when the needs are met and we've got free time and we're good. It's the first thing we do. We try to create some kind of adventure or create some kind of sense of play or create some kind of game. And what's one thing that's absolutely necessary for any adventure or any game? It's risk and constraint. Like there's no fun without risk and constraint. You know, whether we're playing a game of tag or, or we're racing with each other, like we need some real sense of like, there's a possibility of loss here. The last one to, to, to run to that tree is a rotten egg or something. Uh, we need some sort of constraint. Like, all right, we got to, you know, hit the ball, you know, over the fence, but we only get a couple of tries, whatever it may be. Yeah. And, and, and there's something important to observe about that. Like there's a role that risk and constraint and difficulty plays in our so-called pursuit of happiness, a very meaningful role. And sometimes just sitting with that, not with the sense of self-blame, but sitting with that and asking ourselves, what does my suffering, my pain and my difficulty, what positive role does it serve in my pursuit of meaning? What is it here to teach me? I like that analogy of the race because we are biologically and evolutionarily programmed to look for the things that are going to make us unhappy because that's what keeps us safe, right? If you hear the bushes Russell, and it's just a bunny rabbit, not a problem, right? You still think it could be a lion that's going to eat you, right? That's the safer thought to have. Exactly. But it's also the thought that perpetuates our suffering. But we can turn that into the sense of adventure. And we can turn it into a game or a race. How beautiful is that? What's your favorite race, TK? Mine's the human race. Okay. <laughs> this man. <laughs> this guy. This guy here. For our added value segment this week, I have two things for you. True Detective is now officially my second favorite TV show of all time. Man. I went back and rewatched it. So I watched it, I think I was on tour when it first came out. When did it come out? Like 2014-ish, somewhere around there. I watched it. I got immense value from it. I got so much more value from it the second time. Although I'll tell you this, back in 2019, my wife and I sat down and we tried to watch it. We just weren't in the headspace for it at the time. We watched the first episode and she was like, this is so philosophical and dark. And I don't think, I just don't think this is for me. We went to rewatch it recently. It's eight episodes. The first season is there's three seasons total, but they're all separate stories. And so you could watch any one of the, the seasons. But the first season in particular, it centers around a murder. But really, that murder is just a MacGuffin for 
Nick Pizzolato took the two main characters, Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, who play Marty and Rust. And it's just about, it's essentially he wanted to, to film an eight-hour conversation between the two of them, talking ph- uh, philosophy, pessimism, nihilism, and what really matters in life. And, and for me, it, it gave this new perspective on the balance between light and dark. The world is full of darkness. The world is full of lightness. What is your perspective on that? And at first, it seems like a show about nihilism and pessimism. Uh, the main character, Rustin Cole, is a pessimist. He is a self-identified pessimist, and he's probably even an anti-natalist as well. A few episodes ago, we, we watched a, a scene where he talks about how humanity should just march off and not have any more kids to not produce any more suffering. Mm. And that resonated with me from one perspective, but I don't think that is a holistic or complete worldview. And what you soon learn is that this main character who seems like a nihilist is actually the opposite of a nihilist. Everything seems to matter to him. Everything is imbued with meaning, so much so that he has synesthesia, so he can he can taste colors and he can hear colors. So everything has this additional meaning to this character. And I find that to be so fascinating. I thought today when we were answering some questions about this, what we were really talking about is what matters. Because if everything matters, then nothing matters. If everything is beautiful, nothing is beautiful. But we can also find beauty in the banal. We can find beauty in the mundane. The show takes place, we're going to take a look at a clip here in a moment, but the contemporary action takes place in backwoods, Louisiana. And I've driven through backwoods, Louisiana, and I can tell you at first, it's like, oh, this place. In fact, he describes it at one point. It looks like this is someone's idea of a town, and then everyone left. (laughs) And it's downtrodden, but I find a beauty in it. And the way that it's shot... stunning, stunning beauty in the backwoods of Louisiana. This place that you think is almost the opposite of beautiful brings out this significant beauty that stands above the faux beauty of the Balenciaga store on Rodeo Drive. So here's one of my favorite scenes. This is from season one, episode three of True Detective. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I mean when I'm talking about time and death and futility. There are broader ideas at work, mainly what is owed between us as a society for our mutual illusions. Our 14 straight hours of staring at DB's D's are the things you think of. You ever done that? You look in their eyes, even in a picture. Doesn't matter if they're dead or alive, you can still read them. You know what you see? They welcomed it. Hmm. Not at first, but right there in the last instant. It's an unmistakable relief. See, because they were afraid. And now they saw for the very first time how easy it was to just let go. 
Barely saw in that last nanosecond they saw what they were. And you, yourself, this whole big drama, it, it was never anything but a jerry rig of presumption and dumb will. And you could just let go. Finally know that you didn't have to hold on so tight. To realize that all your life, not all your love, all your hate, all your memory, all your pain, it was all the same thing. It was all the same dream, a dream that you had inside a locked room. A dream about being a person. That's heavy, man. Mm. And there's a lot of heaviness here. Now, there's a piece of me that wishes that Nick Pizzolatto, who's the show creator, the writer of the show, he invented this show. There's a piece of me that wishes that he could have just got eight hours of conversations between these two characters (laughs) driving around because these are my favorite scenes. These monologues or dialogues. And the contemporary action takes place at three different times, 1995, 2002, 2012. And you see this bouncing between these different eras and the philosophy as it changes, it solidifies, it melts. And you begin to get the sense that pessimism is not the end. It might actually lead you to something a bit lighter. What's your first impression after seeing that clip? Oh, man, it makes me think of uh, Plato's allegory of the cave where, you know, you have a guy who's like chained so that he's facing the direction of the wall of the cave. And so all he sees are shadows on the wall, but these shadows are reflections of real people behind him doing real things, but all he knows is a world of shadows. And one day he's freed from those chains and he turns around and he beholds the real people of which those shadows were just an intimation. And he sees the sun that like shines light on all of these people. And Plato sort of described that as the process of philosophy, right? Waking up from the world of shadows into the realization of a a deeper world of substance. But it makes me think of that allegory because what you have is someone saying, hey, what you're looking at isn't real. And that feels heartbreaking because we are chained to that world. Like that is like, we're building all of our ambitions and pursuits around that. But if you really think just a little bit deeper than that, that doesn't mean it's the end. That means it's a better kind of beginning, right? Like, well, if this, if this isn't real, then what is real? Yes. It's, it's so much more exciting than these arbitrary constraints and these condition limitations that we have. So I love stuff like that. It makes you uncomfortable and it challenges you. And initially it feels depressing because having a cherished belief taken, taken away from you, Oof. it can feel quite depressing. But oh man, the freedom that comes in instead. What's the Mark Twain quote that uh, it's easier to convince someone that they're wrong? What's the quote? Come on, Sean, you might know this one. It's it's easier. Oh, it's easier to show someone. Uh, oh man, I'm it, totally I think blanking it's something on this. Like, it's about being foolish. It's easier to fool someone than it is to convince them that they've been fooled. Yes, thank you. I only it know is, this because we did this like a week or two ago. Did we really? And okay. someone else. <laughs> 
Yeah, I totally forgot that we even did that. <laughs> um, but that that's kind of where we are here, right? We we cling to a righteousness that like it's so difficult. Yeah. To it, you can't fool me, right? Yeah. But what if I'm? What if I just took a different disposition? Totally easy to fool me. I'm probably been fooled a thousand times, ten thousand times, a hundred thousand times. You fooled me. Okay. So what? I learned something new about being fooled. It doesn't make me a fool because someone fooled me. It has much more to do with their intentions, right? And so if I get new information, I'm not willing to change my mind. That's when I become the fool. I think um, something else about this show that really stood out to me is you get to the these characters aren't 2D. They're 3D representations. It would have been really easy to do the, uh, not not bash on Ayn Rand, but uh, her main criticism is like a lot of the characters seem rather two-dimensional. They're almost caricatures of a particular worldview. And I think it may even been necessary in her books to do that, right? But with this, you have 3D characters and you realize, oh, maybe the nihilist isn't actually a nihilist. Maybe yeah. he's the opposite of a nihilist. Yeah. But maybe the person who's the opposite of nihilist is actually a nihilist. And you start to learn like, oh, that is me. It's not binary. We were talking earlier about the, that chaos is the starting line for the simplicity marathon. Mm. And that's what we're talking about here. When you see the chaos around you, it's not as calm that you pretended that it was. Yep. But that is the place from which you begin to simplify. When you understand the things you thought mattered don't matter anymore. And David Foster Wallace said that he writes fiction because it shows him what it means to be a human being. And I like to think that that's the reason we do this podcast. The best version of me is exploring what it means to be a human being through your questions and through TK's questions and the listener questions or my own questions, questioning my assumptions. But then also there are no answers here usually. It's not a prescriptive sort of thing. It's an exploration together because we're exploring what it means to be a human being. And we've covered up that humanness, our humanity, we've covered up with a bunch of excess things that approximate humanity, but aren't really the humanity that we're seeking. I think this couples really well with a song. The song you hear playing that just started in the background right now is from John Mayer. It's a song called Shouldn't Matter But It Does. It's from his most recent album. It came out two years ago. The album is called Sob Rock. And this is another one of those albums I put on. I really enjoyed the first few songs. And then I got the song, I think, four and five. I just didn't like them. They weren't for me. And so I shelved the album. But I went back to it recently. Bex and I were driving around on one of our day dates, and I just threw on the album. And if I remove two songs from this album, it could be my favorite John Mayer album. And this song in particular, it's about looking at the, at the past and saying, yeah, it's hard for me to get over that relationship. And I know everything that happened, it shouldn't matter, but it does. And so sometimes we don't get to decide what matters to us. It just does matter. I feel like it shouldn't matter because society tells me, you know what, that thing you're worried about, ah, you shouldn't worry about that. Yeah, but I am. I know it shouldn't matter, but it does. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, 
Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, post-production Peter, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, please, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Should have been open Should have done more Should have learned a lesson from the year before Should have been honest Should have just cried Should have told me there was nothing left inside Now the road keeps rolling on forever And the years keep pulling us apart We lost something I still wonder what it was It shouldn't matter shouldn't matter But it does You should have just broken You should have come clean You should have been sad instead of being so fucking mean It shouldn't be easy, but it shouldn't be hard You shouldn't be a stranger in your own backyard Now the road keeps rolling on forever And the years keep pulling us apart I know it's over just saying this because it shouldn't matter it shouldn't matter but it does Messages in every little song. It could have been always, it could have been me. We could have been busy naming baby number three. Now the road keeps rolling on forever, and the years keep pulling us apart. If it's on someone. I blame the both of us It shouldn't matter It shouldn't matter But it shouldn't matter It shouldn't matter But it shouldn't matter It shouldn't matter But it does